Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Sean Wilhite. Sean teaches at California Baptist University and we're talking to Sean about his new book, The Didache, a, a, a contribution to a series on the Apostolic Fathers that he edits for Cascade Books, this book published in 2019. Sean, it's great to have you on the show. It's a fantastic commentary. Congratulations and welcome. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Crawford. Thanks thanks uh, so much. Delighted to be here and delighted to talk about the book as well. Well, before you talk about the book, could you tell us about yourself? How did you come to begin, first of all, the Apostolic Fathers commentary series, and then to think about the Didache as your particular contribution to it? Yeah, great, uh, great set of questions. So just kind of generally talking about research interests and how, how we got there, how I got there, this, that, that general story. So I'm in the middle of my, my PhD program in, in a Latin course, and I, uh, I'm in a Latin course and then an early Christian Greek course, and for the first time laying my eyes on the Greek of the Didache, and my um, patristics professor hands me a book and says, I would like you to review this. And they were kind of two, um, kind of two events concurrent with one another. I'm reading the Greek Didache for the first time, and my patristic professor hands me Thomas O'Loughlin's book on the Didache and says, I need you to review this for me. And it, it just captivated my interest. It opened up my, my eyes to a world that I had yet to be asking. I was simply asking questions of canon, questions of Matthew to Revelation, and really for the first time being opened up to literature that's prevalent in the first and second century and, and seeing uh, other Christian writings in this in this uh, era. Uh, and so I ended up kind of teaching a Greek reading course on the Didache simply to kind of just pursue this a little bit more. How do we, how can we read um, and just kind of gathering a few people and, and start to read the Greek, uh, talk about some of the Greek fa- uh, features of the Didache. And if anyone's familiar with Greek, it, it, it's a it's much simpler in in comparison to other to other early Christian writings. Um, another aspect to this, though, that really helped to secure my interest, uh, the Didache world in terms of scholarship, it's, it feels quite small. There's about fifteen, maybe twenty, um, kind of spread out across the globe. But little did I know that in the middle of my interest of finding this text, uh, uh, Professor Clayton Jefford uh, is a 
premier Didache scholar lived about an hour away and we had met multiple times. Um, and my interactions with my, my patristics professor, my interactions with uh, uh, Professor Jefford, um, and then some of my interactions at SBL really started to, okay, I'm hooked. Uh, I can't, I don't want to write on anything else but, but this. I was wrestling with maybe a topic on Hebrews for my, my thesis and, and could not get beyond uh, Didache. Didache or Hebrews, and I ended up choosing Didache and then chose a few other projects in that, and one of those projects was this commentary. Um, uh, the, the interest in the Didache uh, has only been cultivated since then. It's a, it's a simple book. Um, it's very fascinating. I have too many questions of the text and not enough answers of the text. Uh, and that's always good for research ventures. It's always good for research ventures, knowing that I'll probably never satisfy all the questions that I have at the text. Um, yeah, but that, that's probably a good, kind of a good start. How how did I get interested in the Didache? Where did that come from? And how, how did that kind of get secured? Well, Sean, you describe it as a simple book, but as the hundreds of pages in your commentary attest, there's a lot to discuss. <laughs> that's uh, a right. Lo- a oh, lot to discuss. Right. But before we jump into that, could you tell us what is the Didache? And what yeah. are some of its key themes or teachings? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. And really one of the essential questions to, to begin with, kind of the who, what, where. Well, the, the Didache is, a, is a one of these fascinating works, and I'm, I'm sure many of your, you and your listeners will know, it doesn't come with an author. Um, the, the inscription reads as the Didache, and then it has kind of this secondary title, the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the 12 apostles. And so it comes down without an author, but it, it claims to find its hook or it, it, it latches on to the authority of the 12 apostles. So, so somehow this book and this writing is, is, is latching on to the apostles. I, I don't think that one of the 12 write, wrote it. This is a very common practice to, to provide falsely attributed um, authors two works to then provide kind of authority or uh, kind of giving it life, uh, uh, if you will. Um, so it comes down to us without an author, um, and the authors that it does claim, it's it's pretty suspect that that would even be the case. Um, and then the contents, the, the contents themselves are quite enjoyable to work through. First half of the book, first six chapters of the book, would be the two ways tradition. In this two ways, the the author provides sort of the reader these two pathways. You have one of life and you have one of death. And for five chapters details the ethics that are involved within both of these ways. With the way of life, uh, there's a number of Jesus tradition that kind of comes out. Um, there is some recalibration of Torah, um, and there's some use of some psalm, but not really. Like, it, it's hard to say the author quoting, but it feels like there's this reverberating kind of motifs, if you will, um, of older, uh, of older texts. And, and obviously, um, uh, uh, even, even texts beyond canon that, that are used. Uh, after after these two ways texts, 
the the author or the authors um, kind of unsure kind of who the who uh, is compiling this then devotes about four chapters to cultic practices. And what I mean by cultic practices is what would the community use to express its worship? Here you have baptism, you have fasting, you have prayers, uh, and then you have a lengthy teaching on um, the Eucharist, uh, lengthy, lengthy exposition of the, uh, or teaching on the Eucharist. And the, the teaching on the Eucharist would, is going to be quite fascinating. I, I hope we end up talking about that a bit more as well. Um, and then after the Eucharist, we have um, about four to five chapters again on what does the community do when and if itinerant travelers come into their community. So if we have a traveling prophet, if we have a traveling uh, kind of teacher, what should we do with them? If the traveling prophet stays more than a couple of days, well, they're a false prophet. If they stay just a couple of days, bless them, give them food, help them, send them on their way. How do we listen to them? What do we do? How should we not listen to them? So this this whole idea of itinerant, um, an itinerant traveler then enters into the scene. Then the book ends, book ends rather abruptly with uh, a mini uh, eschatological set of instructions. Some call it a mini apocalypse. And it's this, this real abrupt, uh, abrupt ending. I, I've yet to, and really desire to, hope to someday, but to lay my eyes on um, some of these man, uh, some of these manuscripts. But one of the things about the end of the, the Didache is that it just looks like the author stopped writing. So it very much could be that there is an ending to the Didache. But as we have it right now, it is a is it it is an incomplete um, ending, and and one of the things to to add to this, uh, which would which would help if anyone's familiar with text criticism, often right this is not hard and fast, but often earlier manuscripts are better, um, or more geographical dispersion more helpful. Uh, hopefully, if, if we're looking at ancient texts, you have a couple manuscripts to choose from. The Didache is pretty problematic because there's one. There's only one full manuscript that dates to the 11th century. And so we're reading about a second century-ish culture, first century-ish culture, general. Uh, but we're reading it through the lens of an, a, of an 11th century manuscript. And so... It just poses tons of difficulties to say, I wonder what was added. I wonder what was taken out. I wonder what was modified. And so some of those kind of critical questions do come to the fore a bit, uh, a bit more when, when looking at the Didache. But at the end of the day, um, even though there are smaller fragments that we can appeal to, um, at the end of the day, we, we just have to use an 11th century manuscript to try to reconstruct a second century world. Mm. So, Sean, you've you've let us know there that there's no authorial attribution to this that we can take seriously. Mm -hmm. You've also told us that there is quite a chronological spread in terms of possible moments mm -hmm. of composition, and that's something you deal with in the book, isn't it? Especially yeah. in relation to some of the gospel traditions. But yeah. are we able to know who the book was written for? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, it, it's it's one of these it's one of these items where. We, we have guesses 
And sort of where I land in the Didache or in, the, in, in my commentary, this is where I land, uh, on, landed on this issue and just realized that, man, as, as many Didache scholars as there are, there's as many views as there is on this issue is what it feels like because of some of the historical difficulties. I would be more of the persuasion of um, the Didache being closely connected to a Mathean setting. And, I, uh, and so what, what that would put me as is maybe Didache as the recipients, um, maybe Antioch area, maybe Syria uh, area, uh, roughly first, second century, who are reflecting on Matthew. And so the gospel that, if quoted, the gospel that is most often alluded to and or possibly quoted um, is exclusively Matthew. Um, no allusions to John, no allusions, no allusions to Mark. There's one, a couple allusions to Luke, but it's Sermon on the Mount material, which also finds its voice in Matthew as well. And so that, that, um, that raises that possibility. So because the Didache shows almost exclusive awareness to Matthew, it's almost like we're reading early readers of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and so that would put, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to land on the side of the full compilation or the full gathering of Didache material is in a Matthean setting after, um, sort of the gospel of Matthew is provided to the community. It could be early on. Um, but it, what's, what's, what's quite fascinating about the Didache in this is first century readers, uh, is a little bit different than its third and fourth century reception of the Didache. And, and here's what I mean by this. There's a couple of traditions that that allude back to Didache as a name or Didache 1 to 6, chapters 1 to 6, later on in the, the somewhat in the patristic era. Eusebius appeals to Didache and says, this is valuable literature that could be read, could be read by Christians. Uh, he distinguishes it from scripture or distinguishes, distinguishes it from canon. It's kind of his, his, his more famous list. The Didache appears in that as well as other apostolic father texts. Um, and then you have the Constitutions, um, which, is, which is probably a fourth century text that talks about early Christian liturgies, early Christian um, kind of church gatherings. So... Because of that, it's raised kind of questions, what is the Didache? If we read the Didache as a whole and as a literary unit, it seems to be this catechumen type set of instruction. Also, what does the community do with travelers and how do we kind of live out our ethic together, knowing that the Lord will return but it's kind of vague of what that, that eschatology will look like. And so if um, there, there are some more critical scholars that would look at the Didache to say, uh, all of these are compiled much later, totally fine. Um, in, the, in the commentary, I tried to take a unified approach. Didache 1 to 16, if read as a whole, what would it produce uh, as, as readers? And most likely... Um, kind of this catechumen kind of instruction for new converts and their joining of the community.
So, Sean, if if the book, if the Didache has this catechetical formation purpose, is it Trinitarian? Yeah, that's that's the question, right? That's the that's a good question. So, the the Trinitarian doctrine of of the Didache, it's quite um, uh, enjoyable to look at. If I can kind of tell a couple backstories as well, um, part of my Part of my current research now is looking at Trinitarian theology of the fourth and fifth century, which, as anyone knows, like we're post Nicaea, we're post Constantinople, we're I'm right before the 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 debates of Chalcedon, um, the debates of that that coincide with Ephesus, and so when we look at Trinitarian theology in the fourth century, it's very sharp, and we're looking at very specific sets of dogma. But when we're talking about the Trinity in the second century, we're talking about incipient or very nascent forms of, of Trinitarian thought. Uh, the Didache does show an awareness of the Trinity, but it, it's very vague. In Didache 7, uh, it mentions the baptismal formula. So how are we to baptize? And what's what's really interesting here is that as a threefold process, after you've reviewed these things, you baptize in the name, and then it lists the three identifiable persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But if we don't have running water, we can use still and warm water. But if we don't have still and warm water, we can use, uh, we can pour over someone uh, three times. We can pour water on the head. And even when we pour water on the head, we're doing this according to Didache 7, still in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So I, I bring up that example right away to say it's aware of Christian thought. But how deep is it? It's not very deep on Trinitarian thought as a whole. I I make the I try to make the argument of the Didache, uh, my Didache commentary, that this book is more focused on binatarian thought, even though it's Trinitarian. Here's what I mean by that. It will develop more topics about the Father and a little bit more on topics about the Son, but not a whole lot on the idea of the Spirit. So yes, the Didache as a whole is Trinitarian, but it's pretty weak in terms of its theology. It's pretty low uh, uh, in that regard. Uh, its Christology is predominantly found in the Eucharist liturgies, predominantly found in the Eucharist liturgies. That's where we see the, the discussion of the Father. We, discuss, we see the discussion of the Son, how the two relate together. Both in Didache 9 and 10, we see Father and Son relationship. Both times, the Father is the giver, the Son is the revealer, and the Son provides life of some sort. So in this sense, there's, there's even activities that are somewhat applied to these, these persons. But the, the Didachist, who I'm kind of referring as the general author, the Didachist doesn't really denote like we can't read the Didache like we're reading a, a post-Nicene work. 
because it's Trinitarian theology is so low or it's we have too many questions to ask of it to, to want it to be a good Trinitarian document. But it shows awareness of it, um, it, which means the Didache is a Christian work at that point by demonstrating uh, Trinitarian, uh, Trinitarian thought. It's striking, isn't it, that even if the book yeah. is a little bit undeveloped in terms of thinking about theology proper or Trinitarianism, it does, as you indicated before, have a very robust sense of church order, of sacramental importance, oh, yes. of, of the, the importance of baptism and the Eucharist. How does all that work out? And what does that tell us about the nature of the early church as a sacramental that's community? That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And, and if, if you look at, the, look at the whole, that's almost a driver of the book in, in the sense of how does this community gather together? Um, I, I don't want to push this category too far because it's, it's a biblical studies category within looking at the relationships of uh, early early Judaism and kind of the rise of the Christian faith, Christian tradition, and kind of this separation and 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 real clear uh, clear lines of distinction. The Didache sits right in the middle of that that. Um, uh, those movements of separation, because you read many portions of this book, and you're thinking, "Oh, this sounds this sounds like it as a Jewish heritage," and that's right, it does. There's many things in here that that reflect um, kind of Jewish backgrounds or ancient ancient Jewish uh, kind of culture. But then you see some lines of separation, and you're thinking, "Oh, that was an interesting move. Why that one?" And I'm going to point one out here in a moment. Why did that move and that form of separation, which which sort of gives rise to it, it raises a few questions in my mind just as a as a historian here. What what is what's the role of religious identity in the first and second century as the after the Christ event? And so after the coming of Jesus, how do how do early Christians view themselves? In relationships to others and in relationship to themselves, and one of the one of the interesting things here, the Didache, especially in chapter eight, is where we see this kind of come to the fore. It uses uh, Sermon on the Mount language and the language of hypocrites, and it uses the order um, or or topics that are mentioned in Sermon on the Mount, chapter seven. You have the topics of fasting, and you have the topics of prayer. The topic of alms almsgiving was earlier on, but here in chapter eight, we have the the language of um, hypocrites that follow the idea of fasting and prayer. And in both cases, rather than telling the Didache community how to do it, they tell them what not to do. And in telling them what not to do, it's purely social identity in terms of distinguishing yourself from someone. So, for example, chapter eight, it says, let your fasts coincide not with the hypocrites. So this separation and what's intriguing is that it doesn't tell them how to do the fasting. It just says, do it on different days. Why? Because the hypocrites do it on Monday and Thursday, but you must do it on Wednesday and Friday. That seems to be a social identity marker and less on a cultic 
practice marker. So in other words, rather than how do we practice fast, why do we do it on a different day? Like it, it's meant, I feel like it's meant to distinguish from what the Didacus is calling as the hypocrites. It then, it then is followed up later on in chapter eight, don't pray like the hypocrites do, but rather pray then like this. And it's a, uh, it's a recitation of Matthew six and the Lord's prayer, pray thusly three times a day. This whole notion of, of fasting Monday and Thursday would have been a Jewish practice. Um, it would have been a Jewish practice. And so the Didache doesn't call them um, by that kind of identity per se, in the, in the same way that maybe the Gospel of Matthew does. Um, so in helping identity formation in the first century is so high, heightened, I would say, in the book of the Didache, maybe over, over, the clarity of Trinitarian theology, especially kind of going back to this, the, the last question that you, that you just mentioned. Mm. And so the formation of identity is part of kind of this community's concerns. What do we look like? How do we act? How are, how are we to receive others? When someone wants to receive our community, we need to make sure their ethics look okay. And so it's not, it's not kind of a, a structured they have to believe this. They have to confess this. They have to affirm this. If, if their ethic looks like this, then they can join us. And in joining us, this is the ethic that they keep. Um, so it's, it's uh, um, highly ethical in that sense and formative of one's identity. And I think communal identity at that, at that as well. Mm. And in, in addition to being a very ethically driven document, as you just emphasized, it's also driven by eschatology, isn't it? What, what yeah. does the Didache teach about eschatological expectations? And to what extent was this community that it's defining and describing actually being formed around a distinctive expectation of events in the future? Mm -hmm. No, uh, a fabulous question right there. Well, one, of the, one of the interesting things is that if you were to read the Didache not knowing the end... Um, what, what, here, what, I'm going to tell a quick story. One of, the, one of the good things I love about literature is that sometimes knowing the full story helps you understand the beginnings a little bit better. I'm thinking, I don't know, here, I'm, I'm, uh, we've talked about this with my family here recently, Harry, Harry Potter. Snape is like is not a good character in the beginning. He, he feels like, are you against Harry? Are you for Harry? And you don't find out until the end that Snape is acting on behalf and for Harry all the way from the beginning. And so knowing kind of the full narrative of the story sometimes helps you understand beginning portions of the story, helps that rereading process. Okay, so that, that story to then just dive back into the Didache, that would be a paper. What is the connection of Harry Potter and the Didache? <laughs> as, if that, as, if, uh, as if there's any, there's none, but it's just uh, wanted to connect that, that literary feature right there. Okay, so if we were to read the Didache not knowing its end, you would read chapter one and chapter two and then chapter three all in conse uh, conse consecutive order. And there really is no eschatological overtones. You get kind of the first glimpse of an eschatological overtone in the Eucharist. And in the Eucharist, um, 
It's simply gathering and protecting. So somehow the Lord is going to gather the community and protect her in the kingdom. Kind of the, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's very, it's, it's kind of a passing comment in the Eucharist. And as we keep reading, it, it, there's no eschatological overtone. There's nothing all the way until you get to the book, until uh, uh, the end of the book, chapter 16. And then all of a sudden, it turns this corner straight to eschatology. Um, and so it has raised for some scholars to say, is Didache 16 just added to the end? Or does it, is it attached to the actual set of topics? In, in, my, in my commentary, I, I attempt to make the first few verses of, of chapter 16 the main driver. Uh, it's ethics. Ethics are called for once again to conclude the book. It says, watch over your life. Don't let your lamps go out. Be ready. Don't be unprepared. We don't know the hour or when the Lord is coming. And it, and it sounds very Matthew-esque. It doesn't quote Matthew, but it has that, that Jesus tradition type feel to it. Even It even once more calls the community, gather together as a community, gather together seeking the things that benefit the soul. So somehow this sacramental community or this, this, this community that gathered together is aimed for the protection of souls and, and, and providing benefit to the soul. And then the motivator, the motivator is pure eschatology. Why do this ethics for in the last days, someone's coming in the last days, lawlessness will increase in the last days, abominations will increase in the last days, humankind will sort of come to this fiery test. Um, and then it talks about the signs of truth. There will be three signs of truth. The first sign of truth is this apocalyptic opening of the heavens, how the heavens open up. The second sign is this angelic trumpet. And then the third sign is the Lord will uh, descend. And so Didache 16 is really a is really a charge about ethics. Um, watch over one's life. Why? Because of these eschatological realities. That's sort of how the the author is setting it up. And then it kind of just abruptly ends after verse eight. Then the you the the world will see the the world will see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven. Full stop. And, and the the version as we have it fully ends. Which, if we know anything about uh, eschatology from the New Testament or other Christian iterations of eschatology, the story rarely stops there. Um, and even with the Didache, there's allusions to kingdom. So somehow gathering into the kingdom uh, early there, earlier there in the Eucharist instruction, but not here in chapter 16. Charge of ethics, make sure you live, uh, watch over people's souls, gather together often. Why? Because there's going to be lawlessness that will increase. There'll be uh, the lawless one will come, kind of this antichrist figure will come, but there'll be three signs of truth, according to the Didachist. Heaven's opening up, the sound of a trumpet, the Lord returning, and when the Lord returns, he gathers the same with him. Hmm. Well, Sean, it's been great talking to you about this brilliant commentary, the Didache 
in the Apostolic Fathers Commentary series. And if anyone is interested yeah. in finding out more about the series, they might want to check out Will Varner's uh, interview a couple of weeks ago on his contribution mm -hmm. to the series on Second Clement. What can we look forward to in this series as it develops over the next couple of years? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate you asking that. I, I really want to highlight kind of a few people and a few authors. This is, it's a tremendous project. Really grateful for uh, Paul Hartog. So Paul is, if, if no one is familiar with him, I would, I would highly encourage you to look up his his literature. I've, I've never met a more detailed editor. I, I've learned a great deal from Paul. He is a very humble, humble man, humble author. Um, delight, delightful to work with, sharp, sharp, sharp thinker. So he and I are the series editors for this larger series. My work was the inaugural volume. Uh, grateful to have Barner do Second Clement. We have a uh, one that will come out later this 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 year. Jonathan Lukadu. Jonathan Lukadu is will be producing the work on Barnabas. Lukadu, uh, uh, once more, just really grateful he's, he's a part of this. He's, he's, he's an up-and-coming name in apostolic uh, literature. He has the, the series with us um, on Barnabas. He has, a, he has another work um, that just came out on uh, Hermas, uh, the shepherd of Hermas. And so he's, he's been doing really, really good work. After that, we have Mike Spiegel. Uh, Mike Spiegel's producing... The bigger work on the shepherd, if anyone is familiar with the Apostolic Fathers in general, the shepherd is huge uh, in comparison to other works. And so looking forward to uh, Mike Spiegel. So Lukadu and Spiegel are the next two coming out. The, the, this project will be, our, our end date is 2026. So we're hoping to release one volume a year. That's sort of how all, our, all, all of our authors are kind of lined up as is. And so inaugural volume in 2019, and hopefully it'll end in 2026. And yeah, really grateful for the, the lineup, of, uh, lineup of authors. And how much space do we need to clear in our shelf, Sean? Is it we're talking six inches, maybe nine? <laughs> Let's go with uh, uh, six and a half. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Good. Well, listen, Sean, it's been great talking to you today about this new book, The Dedicated Commentary, published by Apostolic Fathers Commentary Series. Uh, which comes out from Cascade Books 2019. And um, it's been it's been great to, to hear more about the project. So thank you for your time. It was a delight to be able to talk about this. Thanks so much. And thanks for everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.